Welcome, everyone, to another edition of After Further Review. Mark Ferreira, John Pelkey, Jeff Taylor is our producer. We are doing Deep Dive 10 today, 1968, the year in sports and in the world. But before we get into that, uh, Jeff and John, sad news in the world of the NFL. Gail Sayers at 77 yeah. passed away today. Boy, he was one of my favorites, John. And it wasn't just because of Brian's song, which meant a lot to me as a 10-year-old whenever it came out. Uh, and it was and it was uh, remarkable, but there was just something about Gail Sayers that was magical, that was above the game somehow. So this one, this one's tough. Yeah, he. For those of you who never got to see Gail Sayers play, and I really didn't um, either, because of, sadly his career was cut short by injury. Uh, surprisingly, 1968, the year we're about to focus on, he had he tore his ACL, MCL, and meniscus. It was his second devastating knee injury. Yeah in about a four-year period um, and never really uh, got back to his form. But he was Barry Sanders before there was a Barry Sanders, Mark, because he made runs that were just artistic. Absolutely. Um, and I think uh, I, I don't think it's hyperbole to say that if Gail Sayers had been um, healthy throughout his career, he would be mentioned in the best of all time. He would be up there with the Jim Browns and the Emmett Smiths of the world, the people who come into discussion. Um, but uh, I was actually, I have to say, I was a little surprised he was only 77. Me too. And that's, uh, you know, that seems young these days, uh, or at least uh, seems like it's not as full as, uh, as we're sort of used to. But again, the NFL, I'm sure it takes years off one's life. And Gail sure. Sayers certainly was very healthy. Uh, in his in his uh, career post the NFL, but he was injured initially in '65, I believe, with a, yeah. with an amazing rookie year. Kermit Alexander, the 49ers. That's probably why it's it stuck with me as a kid. Uh, and uh, he he had some amazing games against the 49ers, where he would score. I, I think he scored six touchdowns one game, uh, some by running uh, kickoff returns back, and the rest on the ground as a running back. And then of course Brian Song with. Uh, Billy D. Williams and James Kahn talks about that 68 year talks about that rehabilitation and how close they got. And boy, what a, what an artist you're absolutely right. What an artist on the field. Yeah. And uh, it's amazing. The, the bears were pretty snake bit back then. They had two of the best of all time. They had Dick Butkus and they had Gail Sayers and they, you know, I don't think one more than five games in a season. You parlay that into fourth place finish after fourth place finish. And indeed and in a good year, I will mention Mark that actually uh, he was having the best. Uh, he had, to, he'd had the best game of his career the week before his 68 near knee injury, 24 rushes for over 200 yards against the Packers. Wow. Uh, the Packers of that time, um, who were, you know, a, a little long in tooth, they were a year past their championship. That was still a very good defensive football team. And it was the next week versus the 49ers, actually, that uh, that, that happened to him in 68. Um, so, yeah, the passing of Gail Sayers is certainly sad. One of the all-time greats, and I certainly recommend anybody who listens to this podcast or watches us on YouTube do some searching for Gail Sayers highlights. You will see one of the best of all time, and maybe maybe the best kick returner of all time, too. We should mention yeah. that. He was it's as good as so that as any. much fun to watch, and it's a sad day. Sad day yeah, for the National It football. is. Now, I will say not a sad day for Denver Nugget fans, and I think NBA fans. Congratulations. I know we're not going to get into it. We'll talk a little bit. Well, I won't on Friday. I won't be here. You'll talk about it with your family and friends um, as uh, 
Twain Hart, the podcast uh, happens uh, for us on Friday. But uh, man, I, I can't I just can't say enough. The Nuggets are a, a, a lot of fun. And they in a Western Conference where we talked about five or six teams, they yeah. were never a team we talked about. And uh, it has been one of the best stories, if not the best story of the bubble, frankly. I would not be surprised if this thing goes seven. It is uh, what the Lakers did to get back to within that game with, with three points uh, of the lead in the fourth quarter after having been down by 20, I think, yeah. in the fourth quarter as well. Uh, was remarkable, and there's a lot of resilience there. But boy, oh boy, they can finish. The Denver Nuggets can finish. They're young, yeah. and uh, between Jokic and Murray, you know the rest of the team can shine because the the Lakers have their hands full with those guys. Yeah, they as do. Did the Clippers, and as did the Jazz. So it's it is a lot of fun, and uh, tonight should be a lot of fun too. Game four between the Celtics. And the Heat. All right, let's do a deep dive 10-1968, gentlemen. The year in sports and the world. Have to include that because I have to mention what was happening in the world uh, at large as well, along with the world of sports. Um, and that's going to happen throughout the course of this show. So 1968 is known really culturally and politically as a highly turbulent year, as as we all know. Assassinations of Martin Luther King Jr., Robert Kennedy, all kinds of protests, including at the Democratic National Convention, Vietnam, just completely a mess. All kinds of tragedy happening in Vietnam throughout the course of the year. But the year in sports, there's lots going on there, too. Uh, things that people may not even know about. Um, as a matter of fact, there were uh, summer and winter Olympics that were historic. Uh, baseball was historic. The World Series was historic. The NFL was historic. <laughs> College football, historic. It's remarkable over and over and over again how 68 uh, really was a remarkable year in terms of events, certainly even more than 2020. And I would argue at the end of this, we may all agree 68 was a tougher year than 2020 is as well. So let's get to sports. January 1, it's the Rose Bowl. The USC Trojans are facing Indiana with uh, first-year running back O.J. Simpson. Yes, Indiana. No, i sorry. You said you, you, mis you misspoke. It, who? The who, Hoosiers. Who, SC was playing who? They were this, playing the Hoosiers. Is college basketball? It? No. Indiana in the Rose Bowl? Indiana in the Rose Bowl. Wow. Yes. Amazing. First-year player because uh, he was a transfer student. O.J. Simpson had a very good year. And uh, let's take a look at this highlight. Now they've gone to a five. Soggy with a ball. Fake. Hands off. And Terry is OJ to 35, 40, 45. And he is down near the 48 yard line by Dave Pernod. Quarterback Dave Pernod takes the field goal moment earlier. Makes the stop after the 15 yard pickup by All American OJ Simpson, runner up for the Heisman Award this year. That was the typical O.J. Simpson run. He broke three tackles. He is 6'2", 202 pounds, and for a man that big to have such speed, a 9-4. There it is. Uh, he would go on to have a great year that we'll see a little bit later the rest of the season, but the USC wins the national championship just two weeks later. Uh the Super Bowl, Super Bowl two is won by the Green Bay Packers over the Oakland Raiders. There's Vince Lombardi. Three weeks after that, John, we've mentioned this before, the beginning of uh, 
you know, the, the old guard really exiting the National Football League. He retires from the Packers, eventually goes to the Skins. But we'll see throughout the course of the year how uh, the tide is turning and how the old guard is definitely leaving uh, the National Football League. So now, uh, again, we have to bring up the NHL. The NHL, it's its first year of expansion. It's the 67-68 season. So this is 1968, and these are the teams. These are the six teams. They doubled in size. It was the original six. They added the Flyers, the Penguins, the Blues, the North Stars, the King, and the Seals. <laughs> they oh, And they were called the Oakland Seals, and it became the California Seals. Nothing helped. Nothing helped. I think at one point they were the California Golden Seals. They, they were. Added, they added another word in there, they, and nothing helped. They kept helped. trying. Nothing worked. <laughs> nothing worked at all. And, uh, you know, obviously a lot of players, John, that couldn't make it with just the original six teams could when obviously the entire league was doubled. Uh, one of those guys was Bill Masterson who played for the Minnesota North stars. And of course, uh, a lot of tragedy there. He's the only uh, person to die essentially uh, while playing a game because of a game. He had a, he was the first ever to score a goal for the Minnesota North stars he got about, I don't know, 20, 30 games into the season, a huge, hard check. He's down on the ground for a long time. He gets up. He has a headache for a long time. His face is red. And then game 38, he took he took a kind of a average body check, goes to the ground before he even hits the ice. He's unconscious, and he dies uh, 30 hours later. And it's believed, of course, that he had a significant brain injury from the first hit. Mm-hmm. You see there, no helmets. And it's remarkable. If you ask me, it's remarkable that no one else perished with the kind of lack of protective equipment that NHL players had. And not to mention the fact that back then fighting was it it was not only acceptable, it was expected uh, of guys uh, back then. So, yeah, it is really surprising that he is the only player to die, known player to have died uh, due to an injury that he received during a game. Yeah, it's sad, sad story. Weird year for the NHL across the board, how they chose to expand and put all the new teams in one conference. I believe the St. Louis Blues end up in the finals in their do, first which mean, year. Which means the Canadians, you know, this this juggernaut of a team for the Stanley Cup finals faces an expansion team, which is <laughs> remarkable. Wow. Anyway, it's Crazy. like you guys. It's like the Capitals facing an expansion team for their Stanley Cup uh, Stanley oh, Cup victory. Where really you had to go there, did you? I did. I'm so sorry. All Your right. team uh, ruined Gale Sayre, so there you go. That's true. Sort of There's ruined. no doubt about that. Twice, I think, in 65 and 68. Goodness. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's just 68 with the Kermit Alexander. And anyway, January, January 20th comes around, and uh, the game of the century, they call it. The game of the century, Houston, UCLA. They're playing in the Astrodome, a sold-out Astrodome. In 1968, it's the first nationally televised college basketball game, which, of course, is just the inauguration of the multi-billion dollar industry it has become prior to this year, clearly. And uh, they'd won 47 consecutive. Houston was a powerhouse as well. And here we go with a little tiny highlight from the end of that game. Third personal. And there you see the time, 28 seconds. The score is 69-69. Hayes steps to the line. He has already accounted for 37 of Houston's points. They love the big A, and he has broken the tie and has a little force. It's 71-69 with 28 
And there it is. They go on to win uh, 71-69. The Big E, John. You love Elvin the Big Hayes. E, Elvin Hayes. Yeah, one of the great, great uh, Washington Bullets of the past, Elvin Hayes. Some interesting things about that game that I know, for whatever reason, uh, it wasn't the networks or the NCAA that really wanted to put this together. It was a, it was some outside um, TV producer who thought that this might uh, might be a good idea. And then they chose... And this is the most bizarre thing I've ever seen. They chose to seat the Astrodome as they would a football game, which means just in the bleachers. They didn't put any seats down on the field. And they put a basketball court dead center in the middle to the point that there literally was not a good seat in the entire place. And you might have been better off being up a right. little bit higher in what would have been the bad seats. There were no good seats. And if you see pictures of that, and if it, for those of you listening to the podcast, look for some video. It, it's ridiculous. There's like 50 yards on each side of the court till you get to the to the stands. But uh, notable, again, uh, to your point, not, not just for the UCLA loss, but the very first televised, a nationally televised college basketball game. Yep. Back in a time where the first UCLA one. games were not even televised, in Los Angeles, they had to watch them on tape delay. It was uh, a major event. Uh, also should be pointed out, though, I just want to, that uh, Lou Alcindor, the soon-to-become Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, had scratched the cornea of his eye earlier in that week and had an eye in injury earlier in that week and was not at 100% going into that game. But congratulations to the Big E and the Houston Cougars. That was a big win for them, and they will uh, face each other a little bit later in the tournament in 1968 in just a few weeks. So, of course, the real world has to interject, and it does on January 30th. The Tet Offensive begins in Vietnam, which is really, the I think, the first time the rank-and-file American public is really questioning whether yeah. the United States is a win to this thing or not. And they are really starting to second-guess our involvement in Vietnam. It becomes a huge issue uh, in the 1968 Olympics. And uh, so that's the Tet. That's January 30th. But just less than three weeks later, the uh, the Winter Olympics have started. And a favorite of your and mine, uh, John Pelkey, Peggy Fleming, mm -hmm. with a Olympic gold and figure skating, a great year for her, a great season, actually, I should say. Fifth consecutive U.S. championship that season, as well as third straight world championship. And there she is, Peggy Fleming. The, the Winter Olympics, pretty uneventful compared to what will happen a little bit later in the summer. and, and am, I, am I right? I'm sorry. It's Grenoble, France, I believe, yes. was the 68 Olympics yes. in Grenoble. I believe, I believe the other name coming out of that, uh, for some of the people around my age you may remember, was Jean-Claude Keeley, the skier, uh, who became uh, a um, ubiquitous as an announcer, frankly, for, uh, for Olympics past. So Grenoble, that's the first one I sort of remember. Because uh, I was yeah. I was three and a half at that point, and I remember the, the, the figure skating in Peggy Fleming, who went on to have a long and illustrious uh, career. I remember nothing about sports in 1968. Wow! Yeah, and I'm and I'm four years older. I was a yes. late bloomer. I was a late bloomer, Johnny. All right. So uh, again, real world coming up, and this is tough. There's a lot of there's a lot of less than pleasant images in this particular show, and it's the My Lai massacre that happens. March 16th, and, and yet again, and, and, and I want to say this too, there were plenty of other massacres happening in Vietnam by other countries or other countries' armies, sure. I should say. And, um, and while this really focuses on American, what America sort of did for the most part in 1968, uh, it's worth noting that, 
you know, they weren't the only ones to commit these kinds of atrocities. Right. And, and Eli it, was well known because it was the first one that was well documented um, with photographs. There was there was video and stuff. So, yeah, just uh, just rough. a horrific, horrific moment in it and a horrific war as if there's anything other than that. No, ridiculous war. Absolutely ridiculous. I don't think there's any uh, – there isn't a justification, if you ask me. I'll, you'll never convince me. No, and jumping back to the Tet Offensive, for people who don't know, I, I think the reason that it really – and you're right about the fact that it, uh, it it really sort of turned public opinion, which up to that point had generally been in favor of the war, though it was right. starting to slip, was because uh, our leaders had oversold our successes and the the idea that there could be an offensive by the North Vietnamese – was a shock to everyone, let alone one that it was that large. And, and Mark was a military failure. The yeah. me, Lai, uh, excuse me, uh, the Tet Offensive was a uh, military failure, but the idea that they could actually pull it off uh, was, uh, was really the thing that was the catalyst for turning a lot of people against the war. Right. Because it was like, we're not winning. We're not winning this thing. Right. How really could they do this losing. if what you'd been saying had been true? And yeah. there's plenty this, this, of, this makes no sense because of course the Tet Offensive was in Saigon, essentially. So the obviously country. they had gotten they had gotten pretty far south at that point. We hadn't held them back at all. But a week later, sports once again dominates the uh, the discussion. The UCLA Bruins do win the national championship. There's Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, formerly known as Lou Alcindor, along with uh, John Wooden after the 68 championship. And uh, they did play the Cougars. They did play Houston in the semis. And beat yeah. them to get to the national championship. Who did they finish off in more, uh, more current? Event. Who did they finish off in that '68 championship? Do, do, do you remember? Um, I don't remember. It wasn't a North Carolina Thanks, stand. I'm so sorry. You you told me to feel free to ask questions. I would have thought that was one. That's you, true. You might have. I no, I, I I didn't. I didn't. I'm so I sorry. I don't, I don't have it off the top of my head. That's fine. That's fine. Expose the holes in my deep dive. That's oh. part of why we're here. Well, now, that, now, want, now you've given me the green light. Here we go. Exactly. Please do. I want you to. I want you to. Uh, college basketball never, never really my thing. So I was hoping maybe you'd fill some of those gaps. Uh, all right. So. There's Johnson in uh, March 31st with the uh, announcement that he's um, not going to seek re-election, which, which threw everything on its ear. And then, of course, four days after that, tragically, is the uh, assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. And then uh, baseball season's about to start. And so there's questions about whether to start the season when it's scheduled, because that was the day of Martin Luther King Jr.'s funeral. And this is William Eckert, his last year as commissioner before Bowie Kuhn. Not really a great succession there. But uh, this guy wanted to just, uh, you know, do the do the thing, open on the normal time, the normal schedule. And uh, but people asked about baseball because banks were closed. Stores were closed. The New York Stock Exchange was closed for the first time for a private citizen in the history of this country. So naturally, people thought, are we going to delay baseball until the until after the funeral? And uh, and then, of course, what he said, he thought that um, Eckert, you know, passed the buck as you do if you're a leader and you don't know what to do. And he passed it along to the teams you guys decide. So <laughs> Cincinnati. The state. <laughs> yes, exactly. Cincinnati. Cincinnati, of course, said no. We're not going to go. Washington senators said no. 
Houston, of course, said, oh, yeah, it's fine. We can do this. Our, our fans expect us to play. Well, in Pittsburgh, uh, Roberto Clemente, along with uh, other African-American players on the, on the Pirates, because they were the most heavily integrated team in 1968. Maury Wills was on that team. Willie Stargell was there in 1968, among others. Um, they just said, we're not going to play. We're just not going to play. It was it was the taking of the knee. It was the boy, NBA boycott. Uh, none of that, you know, none of that was new, ladies and gentlemen. They said, we are not going to play. We refuse to play. And what they did was that they got Bob Watson on the Astros, who later became their general manager, later became the first African-American to uh, general manager to win a World Series with the Astros, oh, by the way. Um he got they convinced him and he convinced the Astros. And so finally, all of the teams say that we're just not going to play. And the last team to come along were the Dodgers. And that's just so weird because of their legacy with Jackie Robinson. But remember, it's Walter O'Malley. OK, it's it's not, you know, Walter O'Malley was a vice president. He was a businessman. He's interested in making money. He wasn't sure. He, he he wasn't the one that forwarded the Jackie Robinson. Wasn't Branch Rickey. It was Branch Rickey. Is that what you're saying? No, I'm I'm saying that it it was Walter O'Malley by this time. It was no longer Branch Rickey. Exactly. Man. Exactly. You're and just, so and, no, this is just it, this whole show is a prelude to replacing me, uh, right? Friday, no, the family not, comes not in. Not at all. Gone. No, you're trying I to make me look bad. I no, I want you to uh, as. Along with me making you look bad, I think you should continue, oh, by the way, to make me look bad. North Carolina is the answer, by the way. Thanks, Delaney. I almost said North Carolina, and I was too ashamed. I should have just said it and acted like I knew what I was talking about. Probably had a pretty decent chance it would have been them. Yes. So at any rate, finally, the, the game was postponed. The entire opening day for all of Major League Baseball was postponed for uh, for Martin Luther King's Funeral and that inaugurated baseball season, which was the year of the pitcher. We've talked about this before. Uh, remarkable Bob Gibson, as you see, a 1.12 ERA. Denny McLean, 31 wins that season. Uh, all kinds of other great pitching accomplishments that we'll get into as the summer progresses. But it's a um, such a successful year for pitchers that they have to lower the mound. I think they lowered the mound by five inches. They shrunk the strike zone. I mean, I'm sorry. They, yeah, they shrunk the strike zone. Yes, they did. To make it, uh, it's the armpits, the top of the knees. There were 339 shutouts in 1968. Remarkable year for Major League Baseball. We'll get into more of the details as we continue. But just a week after the baseball season starts, John, the Masters happens in 1968. And while it's not tragic, it's very sad for one of the participants in the Masters, Roberto DiFizenzo, who's seen there with his head in his hands. Right. And he's seen together with uh, with uh, Bob Golby, who was seen uh, put on the green jacket as well. What happened was DiFizenzo, uh, his partner, Tommy Aaron, the, the partners are in charge of keeping score. His partner accidentally gave him a four, a par four on the 17th as opposed to a birdie three, and uh, DiVizenzio didn't pay attention, signed his card. Right. He, so could have correct, he could have corrected it, right. but once it was signed, and, and, and the Masters officials caught it basically right away, but they, they had to give it to, uh, you know, to Golby, and Golby, of course, probably regretted 
winning that because everyone, I mean, there was so much mail, so much narrative that emerged that, you know, why didn't you, why didn't you do something else? Maybe you were the one that was keeping score. Why weren't you able to somehow right. uh, be the bigger guy and say, all right, just give me a four on one of but the, but I don't uh, think he could have. No, I, I think his card was already signed. He and, could not do anything. It was blatantly unfair for this guy, for Golby, to get the kind of grief he got as a result of that win at the Masters. So that's yeah. that's rough. Yeah, it's. I mean, you've got to give golf credit um, for that as far as like following the rules because you are required to call things against yourself if your ball moves. Uh, right. When you're when you're setting your club up and all of that, and they are sticklers for that sort of thing, and and I, I'm kind of don't really have a problem with that. The most recent one that I remember is Dustin Johnson, who grounded his club in a in what did not appear, and I believe it was in the PGA Championship. It might have been the U.S. Open, not 100 percent sure, but it it didn't really appear to be a um, a bunker because you can't ground your club in a bunker. It looked like it was just kind of a sandy area off to the side and he grounded his club and he got a, a, a penalty for it. And, you know, he, he was not happy about it at the time, but he said, these are the rules. So Gooby didn't have a choice. Really yeah. the bad guy in all this is Tommy Aaron, uh, who, who put the wrong score down. But to your point, defense and Vincenzo is uh, responsible for responsible for what he signs before he signs it. Yeah. So, so sadly, you know, never, yeah. never won a masters and Bob Gould, he get still gets to go back if he's, if he's alive and get the free meal every April or yeah, I'm not in sure this case. Alive. I don't think he's alive. We're going to check on the, the, uh, the health of Bob Gould while we are moving on. We're going to hell check on that. Like we checked on North Carolina <laughs> uh, being the uh, victim to UCLA and Lou Alcindor. John Wooden, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, all of them, actually. All right, so we saw this. May 2nd, the NBA championship. The Celtics once again win over the Lakers. Jerry West averages almost 32 points for that series, John. Six assists. Uh, they still win. There's Bill Russell. He was also the coach, by the way, by, by 1968. He was the coach of the Celtics. <laughs> so it's remarkable, really, the, the disparity of black athletes in the 60s and in the mid-60s. You talk about Maury Wills in the middle mid-60s still having to sit in, uh, you know, during um, spring training, still having to sit in the bus while they're at a white restaurant, while his teammates get him food, those kinds of things. It's uh, Maury Wills throughout the 60s, even Los Angeles, receiving yeah. hate mail for crying out loud as well. So it's, um, you know, he, he said he and Sandy Koufax used to compare hate mail. We've talked about that, that uh, anti-Semitism is the oldest and most enduring prejudice. But, you know, it, it's remarkable, the disparity. And it just shows you that the country was going through massive changes yeah. so quickly. I mean, talk about growing pains without any time to grow. Uh, it, it's remarkable. On one hand, you have, you have all the things we're talking about with black athletes facing the Jim Crow era and everything else. And, uh, he, Swaths of Major League Baseball teams not caring about delaying opening game until the funeral of Martin Luther King Jr. is over. And then on the other hand, you have Bill Russell coaching yeah. the juggernaut Boston Celtics. So and, it's, uh, it, it, it is pretty remarkable. And Russell made no secret about the fact uh, that he uh, found himself up against a lot of racism in, in Boston. And even at this late yeah. point. While he was beloved as a Celtic, it was that where he, you know, he he'd made the comment somewhere that I'd seen him. He was like, there were still a lot of people who 
you know, kids had the jersey, cheered for the Celtics, but boy, I couldn't move into their neighborhood. So there was a lot of that going on. I think it's also illustrative, Mark, to think about the fact that by 1968, it had only been about a 13 year, a little over a decade since everyone had televisions in their home. And so mass media now had really kind of caught up with uh, news organizations telling stories. So right. I think one of the reasons thing, uh, everything was such a nationwide upheaval was that, you know, people uh, otherwise in San Diego, which would who wouldn't have known other than the things they'd read in the newspaper about the 68 convention in Chicago, we're now finding out those things in real time. So it really was a, a very, very if the if the Kennedy assassination was the first truly nationwide experience, 1968 was when really sort of everyone caught up and we were experiencing everything in real time. That's true. All including good sports. Uh, speaking of, we're talk- going back to Major League Baseball, the May 14th, middle of May, Catfish Hunter, one of your favorites, Johnny. Yes. Pitches a perfect game and, oh, by the way, gets three hits and drives in three runs. Yes. Unbelievable. Pitchers, pitcher. pitchers can hit. Just they make can. them. They can. <laughs> three days later, the Montreal Canadiens, we've talked about that, sweep easily the uh, the expansion, St. Louis Blues. It's their first season. And um, that is pretty remarkable that the original six are in one conference and all the expansion teams are in the other. As a matter of fact, I think Philadelphia, it might have been the next year or two years later, they were the first expansion team even to win a playoff. And I think they were the first expansion team to win a Stanley Cup in 73 or 72. Uh, so there they go. They they win. Montreal wins. That's 1968. They're your NHL champions. Three days later, Don Drysdale starts his 58 and two-thirds inning stretch. So there's yet another record. Going on starting in uh, May, uh, May 14th of 1968. That record stands for 20 years until Oral Hershiser, another Dodger, breaks it as well. That's a scoreless stretch for those of you listening at home. And it's still just to hear it is <laughs> I, I, I don't know. It may be one of the more remarkable um, runs that people don't know about because the, just, just that level of consistency I mean, well, 58 innings, if you think about it, you know, uh, divided by nine, nine times five is 45, nine times six is 54. So that's six consecutive shutouts plus a few extra innings. It's just crazy. It's just crazy when you think about it, that anybody could be that dominant. Um, But again, you're the pitcher. And also it's 1968. So there it is. The next day, speaking of the NFL moving from the old guard to the new guard, George Hallis retires. There he is with Pete Rozelle and with Vince Lombardi. And as we will see later, 1968 continues to move forward in terms of the new guard in the National Football League. And on May 30th, John, what normally happens on May 30th in the world of sports? Uh, I believe that's Memorial Day weekend, the running of the Indianapolis 500. There you go. Look at you. See, when I ask you questions, you get them right. When 1968. You ask, uh, 1968. You have any idea? I was going to say Tony Holm for a minute. I don't think that's it. I know Andretti wins in 69. Uh, A.J. Foyt. Bobby Bobby Unser. Oh, Bobby Unser. Okay. Bobby Unser wins the Indianapolis 500 May 30th, 1968. And, of course, six days later, the real world intercedes again. Bobby Kennedy is assassinated in Los Angeles. Uh, and it inaugurates a summer, believe it or not, that is relatively uneventful in sports and in the world. 
There are some other events we will get to at the very end in terms of things that were happening that are just remarkable that we just don't have time to get to. But in terms of the big, big newsworthy items that are headline news, if you will, uh, it's it's pretty uneventful. We talked about the year of the pitcher, uh, but really the next big eventful newsworthy headline news item comes in August, late August with the Democratic National Convention. And uh, that's Bobby Unser once again, just telling us to uh, enjoy the summer. And then we get to uh, <laughs> the third week of August. And there it is, the uh, the rioters and the um, the ap- absolute mess that Chicago was during the it's, Democratic National Convention. I think I've they, mentioned this before. Remarkable I, anti-war protesters. Yeah, I think I've mentioned this before. I have this weird thing when I when I go to sleep. I like to listen to old newscasts. I have a, I have wireless earbuds, and I'll just you know listen to these old newscasts. Thought, as you as you can guess. Right, so, you, so you meditate, so you fall asleep listening to riots. Listening I listen to, to riot. Well, I, I'm not necessarily riots, but I do listen to, as you could probably guess, Kennedy assassination contemporaries. I find these things very interesting. But I have listened yeah. to the 1968 convention coverage from uh, more than one network, and it is absolutely remarkable what a cluster of of epic proportions it was, and probably cost Hubert Humphrey the White House. Um, because that was a very tight that would be a very tight election coming in November. And the 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 fact that the Democrats had allowed their convention to just dissipate into this ridiculous police state on one side fighting protesters. I think uh, Humphrey's acceptance speech was at like two o'clock in the morning because of things that were going on. It was yeah. it was it was a mess and it changed the course of history. Didn't mention it, by the way, spent the first month not even talking about the anti-war protesters or the war in Vietnam and was about 15 points behind Nixon until in October. He said, you know what? We're going to end the war. These protesters are right. Uh, and all of a sudden, that's what got him tight. That's what got it. So he just ran out of time. And all by by the way, at that same time, for those of you who defend Richard Nixon and say that, uh, you know, Watergate is a little robbery at this time. And this is absolutely 100 percent the truth. uh, His campaign was undermining the Paris peace talks at that period of time. They were um, right. And and Lyndon Johnson found that out and could have actually uh, announced it. But um, and you can argue Johnson's points on both sides of that. He uh, chose not to do it. But. well, yeah. and he got he got burned by that because he tried to have a late October surprise by announcing uh, the withdrawal or uh, a new proposal on the table and um, in, expected North Vietnam to embrace it wholeheartedly as well as South Vietnam. And because because there was intervention, South Vietnam rejected it out, yeah. out of hand. And so it backfired on him. All right. So then. Just a couple weeks later, Arthur Ashe, and this is what I'm talking about, about the disparity, John Pelkey. Arthur Ashe becomes the first African-American to win a U.S. Open singles title September 8th, 1968. I mean, a huge, huge, awesome moment. Uh, We're going to go back to Major League Baseball with more remarkable accomplishments. You're the pitcher. We talked about 31 games on September 14th. Denny McClain wins his 30th, first time since 1934. Dizzy Dean and that's weird. That's only 34 years in between those records. Of course, no one's even touched 31 since. 
but that's 52 years. You know, 34 years from 1964 yeah. was 2002. So it's, uh, you know, very, very... It, it, 2002 to 1968 doesn't seem as long of a distance as 68 to 34 does. And that's just because we weren't alive during that time. I think that's just what happens. Plus a world war and a depression happened as well. That 34 uh, Dizzy Dean, that's the gas house gang, right? The third yeah. St. Louis Cardinals gas house gang, one of the great teams of all time. And since we, you know, we, we can only do deep dives on years that no one actually lived through or doesn't remember. Uh, maybe that's my next one. The gas house gang. There you go. Think about it. The 1930s. I like it. 1934, the 1930s. All right. The World Series starts. This is a classic World Series, October 2nd, my eighth birthday. It starts and it's um, it's game one. Now, this is Bob Gibson, who had won the MVP in the World Series in 64 when the Cardinals beat the Yankees. He'd won the MVP the year before in 1967 when the Cardinals beat the Red Sox. And he starts game one with 17 strikeouts in 1968. John, this is when the Cardinals were cool. The Cardinals yes. were a cool team in the 60s right. with Lou Brock and Bob Gibson and the like. Even Tim McCarver was pretty cool back then. I, I've never been a McCarver hater like a lot of people have. But, uh, yes, they, they were cool. They were very, very cool. They were um, uh, intimidating uh, as yeah. a baseball team. Gibson had a lot to do with that. But they were a very intimidating baseball team and incredibly talented. I would have liked yeah. them then. I don't want yeah. them in the playoffs now. No, you would have liked them then. They're going to make the playoffs, by the way. I know, and I know. Uh, who knows what will happen. He broke Sandy Koufax's record, by the way, of 15 strikeouts in a uh, in a World Series in that game one. But on that very same day, John Pelkey, the real world intervenes again. And that's coming from Mexico City, where the president of Mexico intervened in these protests happening at the La Plaza de las Tres Culturas in Mexico City. He intervened, brought in tanks, brought in uh, the army. And at the end of the day, 300 to 400 protesters were murdered, were killed. And um, uh, if you look at, because the immediate history was that they were violent, but the revisionist history after that said it was mostly a peaceful protest. Uh, So that was uh, literally 10 days before the uh, Summer Olympics started. And that's what's happening in Mexico City. At any rate, we're back to the World Series. It's game two. Mickey Lolich pitches a complete game. Bob Gibson, of course, pitched a complete game in game one. He also pitched a complete game in game four. Cardinals win in game three. So now they're up three to one. And game five comes, and Mickey Lolich is set to pitch again. And uh, before game five, pregame ceremonies, national anthem sung by Jose Feliciano, which was a big deal. John, I know you've read about this. That had never, there had never been a rendition at a ball game uh, of the national anthem that was anything other than just straight ahead. Mm-hmm. And he had a, um, you know, a version that was kind of a flamenco version of it, if you will. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. It's beautiful. But of course, it was controversial at the time because it mm-hmm. was different. And um, and there it is. So, uh, but it set the obviously set the tone for national anthems to you know, sort of do whatever they wanted since. Now, game five, Cardinals are down 3-1. Lolich again is on the mound. Lolich pitches a complete game, and there's a play at the plate. There's Lou Brock, who doesn't slide against uh, Bill Freehan, and uh, that would have given St. Louis a, a a bigger edge, and they may have won game five, may have won the World Series, but that didn't happen. So now it's 3-2. Denny McClain then pitches uh, – uh, pitches game six. There he is. A complete game as well. So coming into game seven, coming into game seven, 
we're looking at Bob Gibson with two complete games, Mickey Lolich with two complete games, <laughs> Denny McLean with a complete game. It's the year of the pitcher. Wow. And in game seven, it's 0-0 zero, zero in the seventh inning. There's two outs. There's two men on. And then this happens. Northrop hits the ball to all fields. Fly ball, front. Hey, almost caught. He misjudged it over his head. Two runs are going to score. The same thing almost happened earlier in the game to Jim Northrop. And now it has happened to one of the greatest defensive center fielders in baseball, Kurt Flood. As he started over, something happened to his underfooting. Watch this now. He catches his spike, see? And he nearly fell down. And that cost him gauging the ball. Flood very rarely has ever uh, misjudged the ball out there. But when he stumbled on his way, it threw him out of his path. He couldn't get back. The ball sailed over his head. And the Tigers now have two runs in the seventh. And this all came after two out, nobody on. Remarkable. That, seven that, gold that, gloves. Seven gold gloves for Kurt yeah. Flood. And that <laughs> was sort of the beginning of the end with him. He started uh, pursuing free agency. After that, the Cardinals organization, which had loved him previous, he had been a big component in the 64 and the 67 World Championships, uh, kind of soured on him a little bit. He was one, as Kurt Gowdy said, one of the greatest center fielders in the game. Uh, and there was a bit of a misjudgment, but it was also him getting caught in that turf and not being able to adjust. And uh, the play-by-play announcer was Harry Carey, John. Hey, looks like he took ah, he, he took a wrong step and fell down. No, you make a great point, and they made a great point about Flood, you know, and, and I'd forgotten about this, is that uh, – he did break wrong on the ball. I mean, it's pretty obvious that the, that and, and they and they mentioned that the same thing had happened earlier um, to Northrop, uh, yeah. to Northrop. So it might have been a little difficult seeing the ball coming off the bat at that point in time. But Flood had such great speed that had he just taken that misstep and not gotten himself caught, he probably would have uh, caught up to that ball. But you're exactly. right about Flood. I think he's eventually traded to Philadelphia, refuses to go. I think he ends up playing with the senators a little bit towards the end of his career, but uh really sad end to a guy who now is a hero for, for major league baseball players. But boy, you can see how quickly people can turn on you. Yeah. And it's not like they hadn't had success in world series. My God. Yes, and, it, and that. No, they had, they had, they had great success. They had there. They were the defending world series champions. They'd won in 64. They were up three, one in this one. And, and it was zero, zero in this game. As a matter of fact, as Kirk Gowdy mentions, two outs. Gibson got the first two outs, then a couple of base hits, and then a, essentially it. You know, it's it's not an easy fly ball, but it's a kind of a line drive. Normally, Kurt Flood would easily get to that, and that one play was sort of the beginning of the end, and that's uh, pretty sad. So, so in the end, Detroit wins, comes back from three one. Lolich three complete game wins. Oh, by the way, no one has ever done that since Bob Gibson. Three complete games as well. One with a loss. Lolich was the MVP. and um, Easiest job in the world in the 19, in yes. 1968 relief pitcher in no baseball. Doubt. It's like ah, every fifth, seventh game, you might come at trot out for an inning or so. Good Lord.
Seriously, on, on 1968 especially. So a couple of days later, the Olympics do start, 10 days after the horrible events in Mexico City, uh, and that's where the Summer Olympics are held. There's Harry Edwards with John Carlos and Tommy Smith. And, and, and what Harry Edwards had done is he formed the Olympic Project for Human Rights. And they were talking about boycotting. We've talked about this in earlier shows. They were talking about boycotting. They had four conditions, John. Uh, first condition was that South Africa and Rhodesia are uninvited from the Olympics because both countries were playing under apartheid, white, only right, white rule. Rhodesia then in 72 actually gets uninvited. And uh, Avery Brundage walks into it with that one as well. The, re the restoration of Muhammad Ali's world heavyweight boxing title had been stripped the year before. Uh, Avery Brundage to step down. This is one of their conditions. Avery Brundage to step down as the president of the International Olympic Committee and then uh, hiring of more African-American assistant coaches. Those are highly reasonable conditions, I right. would say. You know, that is not an unrealistic expectation uh, for this uh, Olympic project for human rights. So uh, four days after the start of the Olympics, John Carlos and Tommy Smith uh, compete in the 200, and uh, Tommy Smith wins. John Carlos finishes third. That's Pete Harmon, who uh, the Australian, uh, correct? The, uh, yes, the Australian Peter Norman, I should say. I'm uh, I'll, I'll be corrected on that. And there he is. And there's a story for that that we will get into as well. All three of them are wearing the uh, the Olympic Project for Human Rights badges, and of course, they're the the black gloves. They had they brought two pairs. But I think Tommy Smith forgot his. So it was Norman that suggested that they split that. And that actually looks great. One of them on the right hand, one of them on the left hand. And after, soon after that, Howard Cosell interviews Tommy Smith. And this is what he had to say. The motivation, the symbolism of what you did. Now, do you think you represented all black athletes in doing this? Uh, I can say I represented black America. Uh, I'm very proud to be a black man, as I said earlier, to have, and also to have won the gold medal. And this, I thought uh, that I could represent my people by letting them know that uh, I'm proud to be a black man. So there he is. It's really for black America is what he was saying. He was also proud of the gold medal. Uh, of course, in response to that, this guy, Avery Brundage, uh, ordered Smith and Carlos suspended from the U.S. team and banned from the Olympic Village. Now, the U.S. Olympic Committee said no, because Brundage, of course, was in charge of the International Olympic right. Committee. But once the Olympic Committee said, no, you're not going to do it, Brundage then threatened to suspend the entire track and field team. And that's when the Olympic U.S. Olympic Committee uh, relented. Um, contrary to popular knowledge, John Carlos and Tommy Smith did not have to give up their medals. Right. But they were banned from the Olympic Village and banned from the rest of the Olympics. There's Avery Brundage looking very, very well. Can I just wrong. say? And, and, and there's a picture of. I know. Uh, I'm going to say. I was going to say that. Kudos to you for finding a picture of Brundage with Hitler and Goering. Well, the the thing is, is I'm not sure that's him. But we're going to go with that. Exactly. Per <laughs> any documentarian worth their worth their salt. You kind of throw something in sure. to help tell the story because he was a Hitler fan. We know this. Yeah. And he, was, uh, he, was, and he, he was something. He, 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 he was something. a piece of work. And then there's Peter Norman. We talked about the one who finished second place, the Australian who finished in second place. He wore the Olympic badge for human rights. 
And because he helped them, and that was very surprising to Tommy Smith and, and John Carlos. They thought he would look at them with fear, and they were later quoted as saying he looked at them with love. He was the one that suggested the gloves. He said, whatever you need to do. Well, he goes back to Australia, who, oh, by the way, Australia at the time was under a white Australia policy. That was the name of the policy, white Australia policy. He came back, and that thing wasn't overturned until 1973. In 1972, even though he qualified for the 213 times, qualified for the 105 times, they did not allow him to compete in the 72 Olympics. Yeah, he's and a... So- he's a- it's a sad story about him. He pay, he paid a price for that. But I think he, uh, from what I understand, and recently there was a uh, documentary on Real Sports or someone talking about him. Uh, he was convinced of the righteousness of his position even even un- until his death. Even though they made work impossible for him, his family was considered an outcast. He was uh, treated like an outsider, you know, in in Australia, an Australian. And this has to be noted as well, John. That despite all the problems in America, that that white Australian was treated worse in his country than John Carlos and Tommy Smith ultimately were in the in the United States. All right. A couple days later, October 18th, Bob Beeman, we've interviewed him at the ESPN Club. We have shatters the long jump, shatters a record that that held for 23 years, held until 1991. And uh, what a great, great moment for Bob Beeman. On the 23rd, there he is, George Foreman. 19-year-old George Foreman wins the gold in 68. Did you remember that, John? Uh, I did. Once you mentioned it, I I, I, I tried to think back because I knew Clay had won in 60 in Rome. Um, I don't right. know who won in 64. But uh, I did, a- after you mentioned that, uh, it did trigger the memory that he was also a gold medal winner. And he, he said he was kind of a troubled youth. He was 19. He beats the Russian, oh, by the way, in the second round in a TKO. And there he is waving the American flag. So there's, once again, the disparity, not only in opportunities for black Americans, but in how they react to how they're treated as black men in America. It's uh, remarkable. You know, any which way you looked, there was a different approach, a different opinion, a different behavior. Uh, I don't know how people in 1968 kept their heads on straight. (laughs) Your heads just weren't spinning every single day. But that was a great moment for the U.S., a great moment for George Foreman, who's, you know, turned out to be just a exemplary guy for the most part. And um, and then and then here's another person that suffered, John. On October 25th, the Czech gymnast, Czech Olympian, Vera Cheslavska, Vera Cheslavska, who won the gold. There she is. And then you see her on the right. If you're listening to the podcast, she's bowing her head during the medal ceremonies. In protest, that's all she did was bow her head in protest of the Soviet sort of takeover of Czechoslovakia. If you uh, know this, in 1968, Czechoslovakia uh, sort of tried to rebel. It was, there was an uprising, out. a Prague yeah. uprising, yeah, student and uprising. Was, and it was put down, and this, uh, the, then the new regime came in because these were puppet regimes. These were satellites controlled ostensibly by – the country themselves. So the regime prior to 1968 was controlled by, by Czechs, but then the Soviets took over, controlled that regime. When she gets home, she can't compete in any sporting events. She can't have any international travel. She is literally an outcast from society as well, like Peter Norman, but even worse, she can't even move. She can't compete. And that stays that way until 1991, until the fall of the uh, Soviet union. So, 
so a, a white European, yes, it was under communist rule, a white European and a white Australian paid more of a price than Tommy Smith and John Carlos. It's just highly interesting and highly ironic. But how about it was it was a year of protests and it was a year of tumult and everyone had something to say about that. All right. The next thing uh, the following month on November 5th, there's Richard Nixon. He wins the election. He beats essentially the incumbent. Hubert Humphrey essentially was the incumbent who was presiding over a, a year where there were a lot of protests in the streets. Not just something of note I would mention. Then on the 14th, John, I couldn't believe this. November 14th. You know that who that is? That's a young lady entering Yale University. Oh, who I knew allowed this. women there for the yeah. first time in Connecticut, 1968. Yeah. What the hell? Well, the the Ivies had uh, traditionally been all men's schools, and they they had slowly started adding uh, women to their uh, to their student body. And I, the, Yale was the last to do that in 1968, and that's why the Seven Sisters colleges. Um, Right. I guess like Mount Holyoke, those, those were schools that were uh, ostensibly the Ivy for ladies. Now they're all, of course, um, have pe- people of both sexes. Sarah, what's it? Sarah, Sarah Lawrence, uh, Sarah Mount, Lawrence, Mount Holyoke. Uh, again, I, you know, my ignorance is showing. I don't know the Seven Sisters, and I feel shame for not knowing that. To be honest, no, I don't either, and I didn't know the team that UCLA played for the national. By the way, Bob Golby. Uh, uh, Jeff looked this up, as did I. 91, still kicking, turned 91 wow. in March. Golby. So he's been getting that free. He's been getting that free meal. Every year. Master, he's waiting. He's hanging on because the Masters is uh, – was the Masters – no, the it's, it's in November, November right? November. Yeah, exactly. They canceled the the Open Championship. but That's the only one. That's the only major that was canceled this year. Yeah, so. yeah notice. So then nine, uh, November 17th comes, the NFL season's in full gear, and, of course, the Raiders and the Jets are competing for uh, the championship of the AFL, and uh, both teams are playing very, very well. Uh, the Jets are ahead of the Raiders late in the game when this happened. While Charlie Smith gained 20 yards, the network televising the game made the classic blunder. NBC turned off the uncompleted game in favor of a kiddie special called Heidi. <laughs> John Facenda saying that is hilarious. It really is great. It really is great. And the, the picture that popped up there at the beginning, I, I, I recognized that from a show that I'd watched about uh, the NFL on television. He was an NBC executive and he was the one who was in charge with you know, flipping the switch basically to go to Heidi. And he had been told to do that. This is, it has to be, you know, we have contracts signed for advertising, blah, 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 blah. And uh, he told the story of having done that and then getting a phone call from like a vice president, a guy who could fire him at the drop of a hat who said, you go back to the game. And I loved his response at the time. He was like, well, I'll do everything I can, but knowing full well that there was no chance that he could do that. Well, uh, the West Coast was spared that. That's why that was never a thing. I don't ever remember that growing up uh, or even hearing about it because, uh, yeah, very famous. But it didn't affect the West Coast. They were able to see the entire and, game. And the Raiders oh, came way, back in that back. game. Yes. Yeah, and did. scored, like, what, two touchdowns in a couple of minutes? On in a, nine seconds. In a nine fumbled seconds. kickoff? Yes, exactly. There's a great story, too. Weeb Eubank was the head coach of the Jets that year, and uh, his wife had been watching back home in New York. And she called him in the locker room 
And uh, it's just such a great moment is uh, Kurt Gowdy tells the story that uh, Weeb, your wife's on the phone and he picks up the phone. And he's like, hello. And she's like, honey, congratulations. And you could hear her on the line. And all Weeb says is one hell we got beat and hung up the phone on his wife. That's hilarious. That's classic. Many of the Jets players you know, had to tell people, <laughs> no, we lost by nine. <laughs> <laughs> or we lost by 11, whatever oh, it was. Oh, my goodness. That's hilarious. So on November 26th, the Heisman Trophy ceremony, there's O.J. Simpson getting it. He had a phenomenal year, 1,700 yards, 22 touchdowns. Uh, he won the Heisman by a record margin. And there's President-elect Richard Nixon with O.J. Simpson. And uh, then on the 26th of December, the AFL championship game happens. The second and the last AFL championship game happens between, you guessed it, the Raiders and the Jets. <laughs> and this time, the Jets come out on top. Let's hear this great play. Wonderful protection. He is looking. He is going to throw long for Don Maynard. And Maynard And that was against George Atkinson. Right. So, I mean, it, it really remarkable. Uh, there's a great story about that and uh, uh, that uh, Don Maynard had come to Joe Namath and said, I got a long one when you need it. And that's how that play came came to pass is that they hadn't really been throwing downfield. It should be pointed out that the weather conditions were horrible at Shea Stadium that day. Shea, and, and under the best circumstances on a windy day, it was terrible, but it was cold. It was blustery. The wind was swirling. It was difficult to throw the ball. So going downfield really wasn't thought of as as something that they could do, that the, that the Jets could do. Um, that, that whole story of that game could be a deep dive unto itself and how the Jets got there and how the Raiders got there. But it's just it's just absolutely remarkable. But I got a long one if you need it. Don Maynard. And yes, that's that's Don Maynard. Yes. And, uh, you know, it's it's Joe Namath. It's Daryl LaMonica. So it's two big arms. And it was 27, 23. So 50 points in that in those conditions. Pretty noteworthy. Um, and that was John Roch or Roush. Roush. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce his last name John for Roush. the Raiders. His last year there. But, uh, you know, already before John Madden got there, the Raiders known for losing big game. <laughs> Man. Uh, Joe wow. Namath in 19. Well, they were. They you're, were and they continued to be under Joe, under John Madden. They, your Bay Area, San Francisco over Oakland. Uh, just prejudice is showing. Man. Again, I loved the Raiders when I was a kid, but uh, it's just the truth. You look at. Yeah, they did. They couldn't get over the hump. They lost. So these were Namus' final statistics in 1968. He, he threw for 49.2%. That was his completion percentage. He had uh, just over 3,000 yards. He had 15 touchdowns and 17 interceptions. And this was, you know, you know, arguably his best season, maybe not statistically. I think 72, he had bigger statistics, but he won the Super Bowl, you know, a few weeks after this game, two weeks after this game in January of 69. And everything changed, including Joe Namath's life. So that's 1968. But I want I want to, to let everyone know that we you know, I had to skip a lot. 1968 is packed. I skipped some sporting events. But I really skipped a lot of what was going on around the world. It was unbelievable what was happening as a backdrop to this remarkable year in sports. We're going to do a tiny little scroll for that. Laughing debuts. North Korea seizes the Pueblo. We oh, know big, all about big that Big story, one. yeah. 
Uh, white only bowling alley in South Carolina. There's a protest broken up by police. Three students are killed. Border clashes between Israel and Jordan. First episode of Mr. Rogers. A space odyssey premieres. Planet of the Apes premieres. Riots erupt all over the American landscape after Martin Luther King's assassination. There's a shootout between the Black Panthers and Oakland police. Uh, results in deaths and arrest. Jim Clark is killed. John, British race driver in a Formula oh, 2 race. Considered by many to be the best driver this side of Juan Manuel Fangio of all time. The Scotsman, Jim Clark. Uh, student protesters at Columbia. They take over the administration and the bill. They shut down the university for a week. Hair, musical hair opens on Broadway. There's Paris student riots. Over a million are in the streets. Beatles announce Apple. Hot Wheels cars are introduced. Mm -hmm. There was a pandemic. There was a flu pandemic in 1968. I think it killed a million people worldwide, maybe 30 or 50,000 Americans. But there was a pandemic. Intel founded. Saddam Hussein becomes vice chairman of Iraq. Black militants again engage in another fierce gunfight. They're just fighting the cops, this time in Cleveland. Medal of Honor posthumously awarded to James Anderson Jr., first black U.S. Marine to be given this award. 60 Minutes debuts. Boeing introduced the 747. Zeppelin, their first live performance. The White Album comes out. There's a hijacking out of New York to Cuba on a Pan Am flight. Beggar's Banquet, The Stones, comes out. The, the biggest heist in Japan's history, 300 million yen. Never solved, happened as well. Oliver, the film Oliver comes out, and we, we heard about some of the other films that uh, came out in 68. Oliver ends up winning Best Picture. Uh, Rock and Roll Circus, the Rolling Stones um, film, not released for another 30 years or so. And it's believed that the first killing of the Zodiac Killer happened on December 20th. And on Christmas Eve, <laughs> on Christmas Eve, Apollo 8, Orbits around the moon, Frank Borman, Jim Lovell, William Anders become the first humans to see the far side of the moon and the planet Earth as a whole. We see those beautiful pictures that they took and that they saw. They were blown away. They were now the have traveled further away from Earth than any other people in history. And the crew, as they're looking at the planet Earth, reads from Genesis on Christmas Eve at the end of 1968. Now, if that doesn't encapsulate the disparity of what happened that year. Yeah. I, I just, don't, I just, I just don't know what would. I think it's Lovell who said that they received, you know, they obviously received a lot of mail from people um, congratulating them. And, and he said the most moving one was a woman who sent him the thing said, thank you for saving 1968. But I think what we did see in the deep dive was that it wasn't all just tumult. There was a lot, to the point, changing the guard in the NFL with Vince Lombardi stepping down in Green Bay, the AFL winning their first championship. They'd win again in 69. We talked about that before. Um, it, it's funny, too, because I remember looking back at doing the uh, 69, the Miracle Mets, that uh, in 69 they lowered the mound thinking that this there would be a huge disparity in the amount of runs scored and everything at the average. And it really didn't change drastically at all. I think it was less than one run difference in games um but it uh it it, it led to a period uh, i think where everybody began to believe that run scoring was what everyone wanted so i think uh a, a, another thing that happened because of the pitching in 68 was eventually the designated hitter 
and uh, this, uh, I believe, mistaken idea that everybody loves the long ball, um, which I don't believe in in any way, shape, or form. Right. Um, but what what a year! Just what a hell of a year! Music, Electric Ladyland by Jimi Hendrix is really Astral Weeks by Van Morrison is released in in that year. Songs from the Big Pink by the band. I mean, it is just a remarkable year across the board uh, for so many things. And also one of the first years, Mark, if if you remember, um, where we we got to see a lot of these things in color because color yeah. television by '68 was a lot more common than it was prior and to that saw a lot of those pictures you know there was probably just as many color pictures as there were black and white pictures yeah uh, you're absolutely right it's just a remarkable year it's almost as if a decade happened in in a single year yeah. or a decade and a half happened in a single year in terms of how much was packed in and how much disparity there was in that we talked about major league baseball uh considering not moving opening day for Martin Luther King Jr.'s funeral, even though Wall Street had done that. Um, and yet Arthur Ashe wins. You know, Arthur Ashe wins the U.S. Open. Bill Russell is the coach of the NBA champion uh, Boston Celtics. John Carlos and Tommy Smith, while being banned and kicked out of the Olympic Village, certainly are both alive right now and certainly have had a pretty good life compared to what Peter Norman and uh, Vera Chaflosky um had as well. So it's very, very, very fascinating, very interesting. I've always been so uh, enamored with that year, despite the tragedy. Yeah, no, it's and again, it's I was three and a half at the beginning of the year. I was born in July of 64. I would turn four that year. So really three or four years old is when you start um, it, it, at least for me, where you remember things as you get older. And uh, I certainly have memories of uh, Lyndon Johnson on television. I I have memories of uh, my mother talking with friends about the riots um, at the uh, Democratic National Convention. Of course, my father worked at the White House. So there were also things going on in Washington, D.C. Uh, cities, uh, there were rioting and protests in all kinds of cities. But uh, I think ultimately... In the end, Mark, it led to a, a lot of social movements that we're still dealing with today, uh, both in a positive and a negative way. But a lot yeah. of positive movement. 1968 pushed as uh, as much upheaval as there as there was. I mean, it, it pushed a lot of things more in a positive direction. Well, we could argue that um, the division caused in 1968 is still with us. Uh, but you're right. We It's three steps forward, two steps back. The arc of history bends towards justice. Now, I told you that in 1960, I don't re really remember many sports at all, if any. But I remember a lot of politics. I was a nerd. Remember, I collected president cards as a second grader, not football or baseball cards. Uh, and and therefore, that's why I had to develop speed on the block because – yeah. The bullies would come after me because, you know, what's this, you know, who's right. this nerd? Hey, man, I got a Denny McLean. What do you got? <laughs> Millard Fillmore. Exactly. I, I got a Franklin Pierce. <laughs> and so I remember, and I told you this, John, I'm seven years old. I don't turn eight until October 2nd. I'm seven years old and it's June 5th. And I'm, for whatever reason, aw awoken around, you know, a little after midnight. And my dad comes in the house. He's been out at some board meeting or whatever it was and uh, says something under his breath to my mom. And my mom is like, you're kidding. You're kidding. And I didn't hear anything else. But I knew, I knew that Bobby Kennedy had been shot. And sure enough, when I wake up, my sister's 
you know, waking me up in the morning. <laughs> Leslie's waking me up in the morning saying, you know, Robert Kennedy's been, been shot. So yeah, I remember all that stuff. I, I, I spent the whole week asking mom and dad who they're going to vote for. Eugene yeah. McCarthy or, or Bobby Kennedy, but I don't remember any sports from 1968. It's, uh, as I told you, uh, my nerddom continues and I listen to, uh, news broadcasts from the past and there's a uh there's one on youtube of abc television and howard k smith if you remember the great howard k smith journalist television journalist signing off you know from the california primary and mentioning you know senator kennedy has won uh the next primary where is it oregon or wherever they went next i don't remember no they were they were done they were on that was the last one yeah they'd come from oregon oregon had been uh, earlier and probably then promoting the, the convention and whatnot. And they stayed on the shot of him at the, at the table as often they did. And they were running the credits and they were playing some sort of John Philip Sousa March. It was uh, uh, stars and stripes forever or something, something of this nature. And all of a sudden in the background, because they have, you know, the setups back then where they have the anchor table and you could see the reporters and the secretaries and stuff in the background, the writers. And then you start to see this feverish movement in the background and the phone rings and and Smith picks it up and people come across. It's just crazy because it happened, you know, like one minute or less after they cut away from that shot. Uh, just 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 remarkable stuff uh, again. And in any other year, it would be the bellwether moment of the year. And it's really one of 15. Yeah. To in that, that year, seeming. you know, are ones that are burned into our minds. Even people who aren't alive, who have any sort of idea of history. They know the John Carlos and the Tommy Smith. They know Martin Luther King, Bobby Kennedy. Um, Nixon being elected in 68, uh, the, the, and we should say this capping, maybe the greatest political comeback in history, Richard Nixon winning the, yep, that no was doubt. anybody who would have told you in 1966 that Richard Nixon would win the presidency two years later, you'd have taken that bet. Well, like certainly in 62, after he lost the gubernatorial race to Pat Brown right, and said the famous line about you don't have Nixon to kick around anymore. And he had just lost the presidency, just lost the governorship. What's next? The, you know, the mayorship of of, of uh, your Belinda. <laughs> wow. Of, of, <laughs> Let me say this about that. The high V will never move to Main Street if Richard Nixon is the mayor of your Belinda. <laughs> Anyway, yes. And then he's the president six years later. Unbelievable. Yeah. All right. Well, that was a lot of fun. Uh, I feel very good about the 1968. A, a shout out to Jeff, who did a lot of work with the editing of the clips and helped with help do everything with the sound for the clips that everyone could hear them. Uh, I had a lot of fun. It was just it was just marred by one moment, John. And, and I didn't go with my gut. I, th- I thought I could say North Carolina and no one would think twice, although Lenny would think twice. Lenny would know. And sure enough, he put put it down there. Uh, but I had a good time and I was a little intimidated by this because it was there was so much in it. But uh, and you wanted to go so multimedia. And I feel like, you know, to just to just get, cut Jeff some slack, I should go to like 1815. And it's nothing but wood engraving pictures that we put up there. We don't have to worry about any sound or any video. <laughs> 1815, the year in Cherokee lacrosse, something, something on that, just to make it, just make it easier. I don't know what the next deep dive will be, and we don't know when it's going to be because now we're in the middle of everything. By the way, I'd like to congratulate the Las Vegas Raiders for first place in the NFC South. Yeah, since uh, that that's that's a story we that we're uh, I won't probably get to talk about at all. The the two and O Raiders. 
it's uh yeah so i'm, I'm gonna have to come up with a deep dive we don't know when it's gonna be we'll do something in the future but Sometime there's the future a lot a lot of, and that was the 10th so it's a nice place to pause yep and then sure. we'll We'll move forward with it uh, a, a little bit later. And now, let everybody know, I will not be here uh, on Friday. I am working an event. Truth be told, I, I have my first truly paying gig since February. Mm-hmm. I'll be in Lakeland, Florida, hosting a, a cross-country event. And that's for sure that's happening? Yes, yes, yes. I'm, I will be driving over to Lakeland on Friday morning. I'll be staying overnight in Lakeland and doing the event on Friday and Saturday. So, yes, I will be doing. I will be doing that. I will have an actual gig, probably the last one of the year since they canceled more of our work. Even into 2021, they've canceled our work. They've canceled the the, uh, marathon and the Princess Marathon, which uh, happens at the end of February. Uh, I know that in New York, there are some events that were happening in April that they've they've canceled already. So uh, who knows what the future has in store? But yes, no one disparages for trying to make a few bucks here and there, even though clearly your commitment resides elsewhere and so what's happening on friday when john abandons after further review we are going to bring in the uh you know the hall of fame of listeners the only listeners but the hall of fame of listeners for after further review we're gonna uh we're gonna talk to tom marino first up we're then gonna talk to joe Connolly. we're gonna talk to brian iscari uh, chief of the fire we are then gonna talk to uh lenny of course Nana will be will be thrown in there as well, and they're each going to have about five to ten minutes to talk some of the favorite items that they that they'd love to talk about. Lenny's going to talk about the Packers. Lenny's going to talk about some college football. Joe Connolly going to talk about Dallas Cowboys betting. I'm sure Lenny will will have will chime in on on the latest lines. Tommy will talk about uh, the Dodgers, the Lakers, and the Rams. Brian will talk about the wildfires. In California, John, we will finally find out whether or not those are caused by them not raking enough. We need to know. By California officials not raking. We will get to the bottom of it by a, a man who is the uh, the fire chief uh, in oh, San Diego County, County, among other things. So it's going to be a lot of fun, John. We're going to miss you. We're going to talk about our favorite memories of John Pelkey. <laughs> And and uh, we'll have a great time on Friday. Okay, and fair if, enough. If you would like to be involved the next time John can't make it, subscribe to the YouTube channel. That's how Ooh, we'll be. See, subscribe. Please subscribe. Tell your friends to subscribe. Tell your friends to watch just for a little bit. How long do they have to watch, Jeff, before it's considered a view? Just for five seconds? Yeah, every second counts. Every second counts. All right. All right, we need more hours of viewership. We need more subscribers and uh, more overall views. For Jeff Taylor, our producer, who so uh, acutely uh, brought up subscribing. John Pelkey, who will not be here. We won't talk to him until Monday. Uh, we hope we hope he, he comes back. We hope he comes back. I'm Mark Ferreira. It's been great. Have a great day. Be safe. We'll talk to you on Friday.